Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Moshe Gersht. Moshe is the author of the Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling book, It's All the Same to Me. He's a spiritual teacher who has devoted his life to seamlessly bridging the worlds of the Torah tradition, mystical wisdom, the true nature of the human mind, and our collective struggles. With Sounds True, Moshe Gersht is the author of a new book it's called The Three Conditions, How Intention, Joy, and Certainty Will Supercharge Your Life. Moshe, welcome. Thank you, Tammy. It's so nice to be here. Nice to see you. I want to start right at the beginning by asking you a bit to help us understand how you're personally processing being someone who lives in Israel, you've been living in Jerusalem now for just more than 16 years, and you were there during the events of October 7th. You're currently in Los Angeles here at the beginning of November as we're having this conversation, and you're in Los Angeles to launch your new book with Sounds True on the three conditions, a book that's about joy and certainty. And yet here we are at such an uncertain time for so many of us in a time that's so sorrowful for so many of us. And I wanted to begin by asking how you're processing and alchemizing all of this personally. Tammy, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. It's very sensitive of you. And the last month has been very challenging, obviously, for for uh, extremely obvious reasons. Everyone's reeling from uh, lots of pain, a uh, roller coaster of emotions from anxiety, from impending uh, incursions and, and sirens and bombs falling out of the sky and uh, grief over what happened on October 7th and all the loss of life since then. And then on the other side, there's a uh, tremendous amount of hope in seeing people coming together and wanting to find ways to use their platforms towards light and goodness and and peace. So there's there's a lot of emotions, and it's it's been uh, it's been a ride these last few weeks. 
Now, of course, you know, when you wrote the book, The Three Conditions, I mean, you worked on this book, what, for four years? And you, I mean, no sense that it would come out in this kind of atmosphere and environment. And as I mentioned, with the subtitle, like intention, joy, and certainty, especially the joy and certainty, I thought, I wonder, I mean, Moshe must feel really like on the spot to be talking about uh, these kinds of topics in such an emotionally stirred environment. So I'd love to hear more about that for you. Yeah. You know, certainty, I think uh, if you go based on title alone, uh, you might get the impression that what I mean is certain that uh, things will turn out a certain way in one's life. And of course, the only certainty in that regard is that nothing is certain, right? Um, uh, uncertainty in that regard is the the most essential facet that we have in our life. But what I'm referencing is not a certainty of outcome, but a certainty of process. And allowing yourself to know full well and stepping into the consciousness that things are evolutionary and getting better. And so no matter how dark things might look, no matter how scary things might look, no matter how bleak things might look, um, you can still hold space for this being part of uh, a greater vision for reality as it continues to unfold. So I lean deeply into that element of certainty right now, which is within the context of all the uncertainty and within the context of all the, the fear and the grief, um, I am still leaning into the certainty that things are going to develop from this. Things continue to get better. Things are moving in a good direction in a, in a collective sense. That's beautiful. And that's helpful. Help me on the joy front as well. Yeah. So joy, and I use the word joy on purpose and not happiness uh, as, you know, there might be nuanced differences in terms of the state itself. Uh, joy, which is uh, associated with a level of peace, uh, love, um, an undercurrent of people feeling okay. You One can still feel uh, a subtle sense or a nuanced sense of joy even when life is overall painful, right? There's, uh, it's the joy of being grateful for what's still good, even when there's many things that can take your focus away. Uh, it's not to be insensitive or to be uh, missing on the fact that when there's pain, there's pain and that's real. Um, but one can be in pain and feel at peace and one can be in pain and be in just overwhelming sorrow where there's uh, there's no room for feeling or or being okay. So the state of joy, when you're in a time of incredible challenge, which we are, we find ourselves in a great time of what feels like divisiveness and chaos. And, uh, and yet you can hold space for a bit of light, even within all of that. And that that is really the byproduct of the certainty and the intention, which is if you can hold space for things still moving in a direction greater than what we might be able to perceive on the surface, to know that there is something underneath the surface that's still moving us forward. And to know that you know everyone is truly doing the best they can within the context of their mind, right? And you hold space for all of that. You can still hold... Uh, a feeling of peace and joy within you as you go through the pain, but it's not the joy of jubilation and and happiness of you know, you know, winning or succeeding or or seeing you know goodness be fully expressed. That it's you know it ranges, and right now maybe we're on uh, the bottom part of that spectrum. 
Can you uh, share with me what it's like for you inside feeling both a deep sense of peace and other emotions at the same time, like sorrow, and how they coexist and what that's like for you if you were to put it under a magnifying glass? Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, the first book that I'd written, It's All the Same to Me, focuses on exactly this point. There's a concept in uh, Torah and Hasidus called hishtavos, which means sameness or uh, loosely translated as equanimity. And as it relates to those elements of self, um, it's not, you know, the name of the book is It's All the Same to Me, but that sameness doesn't mean an apathetic, it's all the same, and therefore it's all dull. But uh, the only thing that's the same is that uh, is that God force in reality. It's the underlying current of oneness and infinity that's there. And when you are going through pain and grief and sorrow, and you resist that grief and sorrow, so that's where that the tension comes, and you're not living in that that state of hishtavos, uh, but to be able to be there with the pain and not to fight it. And when the tears come to your eyes and you allow them to come through, um, that cathartic release of allowing yourself to be in the pain, or if you're feeling anger and allowing yourself to be in the anger, not to necessarily take action and, and lash out, but to feel the feelings, um, there is a there's a piece you can almost feel it like surrounding uh, the emotion. It's it's almost like the emotion is is being held by something. So it's not a contradiction to be in pain and be at peace, or even to feel great at other times, but not let that overwhelm you to where you can lose perspective. So I think that's how I feel it internally. It's almost like there's a um, a hug around the the other emotions. You get a lot of bad jokes about that title. It's all the I, same to me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you could only imagine, right? I mean, my brother said he's going to write a book called It's All the Same to Him. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So I do. Of course we do. But uh, but it's good. It's a good way to start a conversation. How did you come to that discovery yourself experientially of I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, Hishtavos, so if I'm saying that right. Yeah, for me, it first started as seeing it as a concept in books. I started seeing it in uh, the world of Hasidus and Kabbalah, um, all the way back to some of the medieval writings in the world of Torah. Um, and then, of course, seeing that as it uh, reflected in the concept of equanimity that uh, we find in uh, different Buddhist texts. And uh, it was still conceptual. I didn't know how to digest uh, the idea that there can be such a such a sameness. I, I understood that there's levels of frequency within oneself where you can be in a higher state or a lower state. You can feel really good and you can feel really bad. But the idea that all of that can uh, be held in a, a consciousness of uh, of light uh, was still just uh, exactly that. It was an idea, a concept in my mind, something that I was hoping to be true and that I believed in. Uh, and I think the deeper that I stepped into meditation, you know, prayer and study, so a big part of my life for many years, but meditation came later in my journey. Uh, as someone who uh, grew up in a, in a home filled with meditation, it, it, you know, anything you grow up with in your house, sometimes you, you push it off to later before you find it yourself. So there was a lot of meditation in my home growing up. So uh, I found other ways to practice. And when I finally did put, you know, a solid meditation practice into my day, those experiences started um, 
meshing, bleeding into all the other day-to-day experiences. And that's that's really where it started to come to life. Um, yeah. Now, you have a very interesting personal story. Uh, I didn't know your uh, parents were meditators interested in meditation, but you yourself, between the age of 13 and 20, were a pop punk musician, achieved some level of success, and then put the whole thing down. Why did you put the whole thing down? And then what brought you to living in Jerusalem? Yeah, I love music. It is uh, so it is, uh, what's the right, right expression? It is, it's just, it's coursing through my veins. That's the right way. I feel, I just feel like uh, a deep, deep affinity towards it. And when I was 10, that's when it became real to me that, oh, this is this is really what I wanted to do and pursue. It, it felt like a, a very clear calling that this is who I am. And so I did pursue that very strongly uh, for all of my teenage years. And we signed with a label in LA and we toured the country a few times and the radio and MTV and things were, were, were working. You know, if you can quantify it like that, things were going really well. We were about to go on tour with a group at the time. They were uh, called Good Charlotte, which was a very big group. And they were having uh, really big concert tours. And it was the confluence of two different uh, events that took place at the same time. One was watching uh, one of my closest friends uh, struggle with drug addiction uh, in the um, in the band, which was really challenging to to start to see some of what I was always told the dark side of the entertainment industry and the music industry. Uh, and while that was happening, we were releasing a new album, and someone had come over to me and asked me how long was I going to play music for, which is a funny thing to ask a musician. And I said, I don't know, I guess until we're successful and then I'll settle down. And he said, when's that? I said, when's what? And he said, when is success? Um, and at the time I, you know, I think I told him to grab an, a drink or something because he was ruining my, my moment. Uh, but I woke up the next morning and every day after that, thinking about that question, when is that? When is success? And uh, the pondering turned into researching, turned into um, the beginning of a search for what that was. And I didn't have the answer to what success was or when you could find it, but I did come to the realization that you might be able to succeed at something you do and still fail at life, that that was still a possibility, that you could become great in any field. Um, and yet the holistic elements of your reality might not match up to what you truly desire, what you truly want. And so that sent me on a search for meaning, a search for purpose. And how do you get to that place called success? And being that I was from a, a Jewish community in Los Angeles, uh, Jerusalem was the spot that a lot of people go to look for truth and look for meaning. So that's where uh, I went as well. Uh, and I fell in love with what I found there, both in love with the the wisdom that I was finding. Uh, then I also met my wife there. So between between my two loves, <laughs> I ended up uh, spending the last 16 years in Israel. You know, one of the things I'm curious about is as you started to study the Torah, when did it become alive for you, fascinating for you? Like what lit up for you? About, and I say that because, you know, I was raised in a Reformed Jewish family. I heard the Torah read at temple on Friday nights. And quite honestly, I didn't connect uh, well at all. I found it very foreign and uh, not easy for me to find a, a route in 
to inner spiritual discovery through the Torah. So I'm curious what your root was. Yeah, that so resonates. Growing up, I had a very similar experience. In fact, if you'd have asked anybody who knew me in high school, the idea that I would end up in Jerusalem studying Torah would, that would have been uh, the farthest thing from uh, from the reality. Uh, I wasn't all that inspired by the ideas that I saw. I mean, they looked like a bunch of you know nice things, uh, rituals, and um, a handful of good ideas. Uh, but like I mentioned before, I was raised in a home that had a lot of consciousness in it. Uh, my my mother had has gone through and um, a lot of her own personal traumas, which put her on a path many, many years before. Uh, so I was born in a home that was already on this path. So I was hearing so many ideas and living a reality that felt very real, like the actual experience of spirituality and God, those things were real to me. The soul was real to me. The uh, the underlying current of reality and energy and flow, that was all real to me. Torah did not do that for me, uh, certainly not in high school. And it was only when I came to Israel and I found the world of uh, what we'd call you know, Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah and Hasidus, where all of a sudden I was hearing uh, Torah and ideas that resonated with that which I already knew to be true based on how I was raised and my inner experience of life. And um, th that was really where the world came together for me. It, it still took another six years of being in that space before I started to, as you uh, said before, alchemize a lot of the ideas and integrate them into my human experience uh, because they were, they were still ideas from two different worlds. And then, um, and then they started coming together, but th that's what it was for me. Uh, and it was, it wasn't a straight path by any means. I'm still uh, hoping that you're going to help me have an appreciation of something from the Torah that really gave you language for some of your inner experience that has been hugely helpful to you and how that came through those writings in mystical Judaism. I would say if I had to point to one piece of Torah that's really changed my life, I think it's something that I think about almost every single day. And if I'm not thinking about it, I'm somewhere conscious of it, uh, is the name of God itself, the way that Torah relates to God. There's a, a four-letter name that's not pronounced, but so, you know, if you go to, you know, any any Jewish place, they'll, they'll say Hashem or, you know, some, some other name that points to it. But these four letters, the way they're spelled... Um, the first letter is the letter Yud, which uh, connotes the idea of something constant, always. It is uh, in a perpetual movement. And then the next three letters are He, Vav, and He, which spell the word Hove, which means present or now. And so the, the absolute or um, essential translation of the name of God, the way that one is uh, able to, or the opportunistic way of relating to the name of God is the forever now, the eternal present, the always here, um, uh, pure being in that sense. And I don't know if I ever knew that. I never heard that growing up. It wasn't an idea that was ever expressed to me. But when I saw it in uh, in the books in Kabbalah itself, um, everything came came alive. It was like, that. that's the answer, right? Because uh, you know, I've, I was always told the story when I was younger, you know, where is God? And then they'll say, wherever you let him in. Uh, but there's a, a true depth of truth to that, which is 
the whole idea of God is, is the ever-present. So whatever is happening for you in this moment, your phenomenal experience of reality is your opportunity to connect to what God is for you in that moment. And that's how it's unfolding. So you can't look anywhere without being in that experience, right? That is, for me, the the underlying uh, quotient that we're looking at. If you can work out how to be in the eternal now, uh, you are now uh, in a state of awakening. That's beautiful and helpful. Thank you. Moshe, you did it. Thank you. You you connected me to four Hebrew letters and a powerful teaching. Thank you. You're so welcome. What a pleasure. When I think of how you began in our conversation describing certainty, the certainty, things are uncertain, but there is this certainty that we're moving in some kind of positive evolutionary direction of some kind. That's what I heard you say. There's some sort of benevolent directionality in things. I I wonder if you can connect how you know that with the definition and name of God that you shared with us. How do you know, especially when you see all these horrible, terrible atrocities happening? And it seems, I think, on the outside to many people, like things are not moving in a particularly good direction at the phenomenal level at all. In fact, it you know it looks like we're in retrograde motion. Where does this certainty come from? That's amazing. And if we if we can even just well we can backpedal right back into the name itself as a as a model for this vision. Again, we said there are these four letters. Um, and if we if I had a screen or a board behind me, I would write them out and you can actually see it depicted in the shapes themselves. Uh, but that first letter is almost just like a dot. It looks like a like a little like a period you'd put at the end of a sentence, the yud. Um, and then the hay is uh, looks almost like a, like a little house with a door and a window. Uh, they represent the the concept of a seed idea that's bursting with potential, but is not yet manifest. And the house represents uh, the imp- the impregnation of the idea or of that potential, uh, moving from uh, a higher state to something that's more manifest. The third letter is above, which is a straight line, just looks like a line top to bottom that goes on the space, which again uh, connotes and reflects the idea of being able to now draw that from within uh, the womb, uh, the Mother Earth reality, and to bring it and move in the direction of it being manifest. And then, of course, the final letter is a hey again, which is the expression of uh, that which is showing up in our life, the, the final manifestation of what this is. So again, when you when you look at that name, so although there is an eternal presence, right, but it's an eternal presence that has motion, that is moving from uh, a seed of an idea, a seed of potential, and is moving from top to bottom. And that's uh, far from overnight, the same way that the gestation process takes time to go from you know seed to birth. We are in a movement of life, right? All of life reflects itself, and, and we are in a, a fractal system as far as we're concerned, right? So everything is reflected in everything else. So the same way that it takes time to go from one place to another in this two or 3D reality that we're in, in this dual world that we find ourselves in, so it takes time to get from a beautiful, pristine idea to the manifest reality. Uh, and so there's a line in A Course in Miracles that I think about often, which is with infinite patience, you get immediate results, right? And so that's the that's the work, is to step into the infinite patience, knowing that we're moving in that direction. 
The title of your new book, The Three Conditions, conditions for what? For a supercharged life. <laughs> um, so then I guess the question is, what's a supercharged life? Uh, you know, it, I think about, you know, in sports, weather conditions are really important. You know, in flying, weather conditions are really important. The, you know, in uh, in business, everything has its conditions for, you know, the perfect storm will allow the release of whatever it is you're trying to do to come out. So the, that's the, the you know, contextually, when I use the word conditions, that's what I'm speaking about. Uh, and what a supercharged life is, we're going to have to go through this thing. You know, you weren't asked if you wanted to be born, not at least consciously. Maybe our souls were asked or our higher consciousness was asked, but you're born uh, and you just, we showed up here, right? Here we are in this life, in this body. And uh, we know that we're going to be here for some time. And then we check back out to wherever it is that we're going. And the question is, how do we live the space in between, right? The in-between, the meantime, right? I always like to think about people say, well, what are you going to do in the meantime? All of life is the meantime, right? So how how we go through this human experience can either be done on one level or it can be done at a much higher level where you feel and experience the love, the joy, the peace, the goodness, the purpose, the enthusiasm, all of those wonderful things that we look for, right? The fulfillment that we are all uh, called to. And these conditions create the space by which now you're living up here and not down here. And of course, it's an, it's an ebb and flow no matter where you are. That's, that's the nature of reality. Uh, but where your baseline is shifts. Right. And if you oversimplify the three conditions, intention and certainty are about the belief in self and belief in uh, divine or cosmic uh, guidance in the universe. Right. So I am good and and life, the underlying uh, element of life is good. The degree by which a person associates or makes those assumptions in their mind as they go through this world, they'll experience that joy, which is that third condition from that place two shifts happen. One is psychological and one is spiritual or energetic. The psychological shift is you are now open-minded and open-hearted in the process, which means you're not holding on to negativity. You don't live in perpetual resentment and resistance to life. You are uh, looking for opportunities, uh, the silver linings, uh, living with gratitude. Those all become natural psychological um, you know, benefits of living in those states. And then of course, energetically or spiritually, uh, when you are living in that higher state of consciousness, your frequency is raised. So the mirror effect or the law of resonance, whichever, you know, version of what you put out is what you're going to receive. That That's a truth. That's a spiritual truth across all traditions. And so when, when you put yourself in that place, you're changing your life. Your entire reality shifts by going into that space of understanding or um, realigning with the truth of who you are and what life is. Now, you mentioned I am good and... The world is good. The totality is good. The totality that we're in. And I wonder if you can address that person who says, I'd like to be there. Of course, I hear these things. But the truth is, there are moments when I don't feel very good. In fact, I feel uh, unlovable or worthless, or I'm not sure if I'm good. And I certainly am not sure the whole of this world is good, especially when I look out and uh, see the kind of violence. I want to be there, but I'm not there yet. 
what would you say to someone on that journey? You know, what will help them? Sure. Uh, there's probably a handful of things I might say to this person, but the one that comes up for me in this moment is the reminder that what you focus on, you feel. And there are many things we can put our attention on at any given moment. We can never put our attention on everything at any given moment. That's just not how life works. And so with that in mind, whether it's a belief in self or a belief in the goodness of humanity or of the world, how it's unfolding, uh, our essential choice is where do we place our attention in those moments? So uh, for instance, if we're if I'm sitting with somebody who has a hard time believing in their own essential goodness, maybe they don't feel worthy of that next step in their life, a relationship, a job move, a big decision. Uh, so I would ask them, you know, to think about and to start and truly give attention to where, where have you already done good? Where do you already know you're good? And in the beginning, it's usually one or two pieces where they can say with that, with certainty, uh, I'm, I've done this in my life, or I have this quality in my life that, that is good. And so we then focus on that and expand on that. Okay, well, paint me a picture of what that looks like. And what does that feel like? And the more you spend time in that space, uh, quite often, they find now a third or fourth or fifth piece to add to the puzzle. And the more you lean in to focusing on what's already going well, you don't need to fabricate anything. There's already so much good that that's within you. That starts to shift the way you feel. And once you shift the way you feel, that will in turn shift how you think. And so now your thoughts start moving more and more in the direction that you put yourself in. So you are, you are, you know, the beginning is pushing the snowball up the hill, but once you get to the top, it'll roll very nicely down the other side. Um, so what you focus on, you feel it's the same with the world. You can turn on the news and focus on everything that's going wrong. Um, and there is value in knowing what's happening on the planet for sure. We, and we have to have empathy for all the pain that's taking place. Um, but if that becomes your, your, localized attention where all your attention just is on on the bad or on the struggle uh so of course you're going to feel like it's not a good world there's a great book called factfulness um i can't recall the name of the author in this moment um but he uh, uh he died in 2016 and he uh, brilliantly put a book together pointing out all the facts on how the world has just gotten better and these were these were facts they were not opinions of where where life has gotten better just over the last 100 years 500 years 1000 years and when you make that your focus so you can look at the world and you can be you can be positive because things are getting better but it just depends where we're putting our attention now, Moshe, you gave this uh, image of uh, rolling something up a hill, and then at a certain point, it's going to roll down. I wasn't 100% sure I understood that uh, practically in my own life in working through some sense of challenge or difficulty that's stuck inside my head. Can you mm. uh, help me understand it? Yeah. So uh, maybe a good example would be a person who they know they went through some form of trauma and uh and now they're aware enough that they want to seek help and so they want to sit with a therapist or a teacher or a coach someone to help them move through that uh quite often and i would even venture to say the majority of the time uh it's actually a painful process it's actually hard in the beginning to go back to that pain and to rehash it and to share it and then to move through you know some system you know a cbt a dbt an ifs something you have you know whatever modality you're going to work through as you work through the challenge and the pain and that's kind of like rolling the ball up the hill 
right? Uh, and the same thing is true when you're feeling negative about yourself. And I'm asking you to look at the positive. In those moments, in the beginning, that's actually hard. You don't want to, your, your momentum has pushed you in the other direction. So now you're starting in, your default is minus, right? You, you already have a negative self-concept in that moment. So to help hold someone's hand and move them back up the hill, um, that can be a challenge. It's actually asking them to exert some energy uh, in those moments. But there does come a point along the way, whether it's a, a long form journey or just in a sh small casual conversation with your friend over coffee, where uh, if you can stay conscious and continue to focus on the good in the person you're sitting with, right? A good facilitator is always seeing the goodness in the one they're sitting with, that they do get to the top of that hill and then it starts to go on its own, right? And you can start creating an engine within moving in the other direction. Uh, and it doesn't happen every time and it doesn't happen every day, but that's the, the vision that I see. In reading the three conditions, one of the parts of the book that really got my attention, it was towards the beginning and you were talking about your own journey and being in Jerusalem and how you started teaching and how you were uh, teaching beautifully, but then when you weren't in the teacher's chair, some of your own challenges were still apparent in your life and you would be short-tempered or overeat or something like that. And, you know, first of all, you don't hear very many teachers confess that. They go from whatever they were struggling and now they're, you know, the, the terrific spiritual teacher and they don't necessarily describe those years of the, uh, process that, you know, probably go on for a long time for a lot of people who teach where there's still so much material that's being worked out behind the scenes. So I'd love to know a little bit more how you personally worked out a lot of your own unresolved material, even while you were teaching so beautifully. Yeah, that, I mean, and I appreciate that very much. And I, I have spoken to so many teachers, you know, along the way. And it's, uh, we are human beings having this experience. And even when you're growing, uh, you're never all the way there. Whatever de the destination, the goalpost continues to move as you move in that direction. So, so I there was a time in my life where you show up and you'd give over your intellectual wizardry and, you know, to to a round of applause and to to people saying wow that was so beautiful that was so deep that was so brilliant whatever it is that they had said made my ego feel really good uh in that moment and then i'd come home uh and crash on the couch feeling imposter syndrome feeling shame feeling guilt of not being good enough i could have done this better could have done that better or how could i share this idea i'm not living there fully in this moment i was living there when i wrote the class i'm not living there today right and there's like a dissonance in that am i am i even allowed to share this idea if right now it's not true for me even though i know it's true in a greater context so you know, those are just a few elements or, you know, when somebody would come to my home and we'd, we'd have a, you know, like a, a group sitting around a table and someone would ask a question and um, I felt like I had to know everything. As soon as you start teaching, you kind of feel like I'm supposed to know it all already. And maybe I did or I didn't have the answer, but I whatever shows up, I'm going to have to make sure that it, it gets there. And never never lying or fabricating anything, but that pressure, that feeling underneath of needing to be a finished product the anxiety that comes with that that was so hard um, and it wasn't until i 
and really, I think the the major shift for me happened. I found a great a great therapist, a great facilitator who could sit and work with me on this very specific thing, which was um, speaking about who I am vis-a-vis my te- the teachings that I'm teaching and my own personal process and the the people that I was sharing this with. Uh, it was so important to have a mirror. Yeah, to have a mirror, somebody look at you and say, "This is you. You're exactly where you're supposed to be," uh, and to let the the parts of you that are still searching for external validation be seen. Okay, so there's that part of me, and that's that's allowed. And there's a a, a part a part of the the journey is being okay with that, not not shoving that down or repressing that part of your ego of saying, "Oh, look, I have that. That's still the way I think. That's still part of my belief system." Um, again, I, I think I was probably 25 or 26 when a lot of this was going on. You know, my in my mid 20s. So uh, I would, you know really young and still wanting to be successful, right? Just redefining things. Uh, Maybe the biggest breakthrough happened for me in that process, and maybe this is helpful for those who are feeling something similar, is uh, giving up the notion that you're supposed to be anything in this. Um, Allowing yourself to be a, a complete vessel for whatever comes through, trusting that uh, if you've if you've studied and you've learned and you've had your life experience and you know you know whatever it is that you know, um, then and check check everything else at the door. You're you're not you're never supposed to be finished. There's no finished. We're still, you know. You speak to any great teacher who who's lived through life and now uh, maybe they're in some golden years and they're in their I don't know their their seventies or eighties and. They, they know, okay, you know, maybe there's a a good 30, 40 years left if life continues to go well, right? And they, they've they been there. They, they don't hold on to the same things that younger teachers hold on to. They're just showing up, having a conversation and trying to impart whatever wisdom they have and being present with those there. Uh, so for me, that was transformational, being able to have that. There are other pieces, but I think that was the biggest one. We've, we've talked some about uh, how you... Uh, understand and teach on certainty and also joy as a kind of peaceful equanimity with whatever might be happening emotionally. We haven't yet talked about very much about intention as one of the other three conditions. And, you know, a lot of people talk about intention. And I notice that often the question that comes up for me is how do we make sure that our intention isn't just uh, a type of mental projection? How do we have it really go all the way through our being so that intention is our full soul force, not just you know some part of us that's stating something, but we don't really have the whole musculature of our being behind it. And I wonder if you can talk to that. Yeah. The when at least when I use the word intention here, um, I'm referring back to touching the essential intention for life. Wh- why, why we are here? Why we came? It's a a realignment to that higher inner knowing that sometimes we feel and sometimes we don't. But to to connect to that space of intentionality within us, which is, I, I am here for something which means that I have purpose, which means that there's a, an essential goodness to who I am. There's a worthiness to who I am. Uh, there's a desire to create uh, is part of who I am. Um, there's a, a doing element. I'm here to do something and uh, express my being. So 
th- that version of intention is not it's it's not so much about setting intentions which i think maybe you were referring to before like i'm going to set my intention to fill in the blank i'm going to put my mind to do it filling the blank uh get the get that job write this book um you know fill uh fill some stadium, whatever it is a person might have their goals. This is less about goal setting and more about returning. It's a return movement to self, uh, allowing oneself to be fully authentic in their nature. And I think when one is setting intentions, now to your question, from that place of, of being connected to your soul intention, I think there's a line that I wrote in the book that our soul intention is our soul intention, our S-O-U-L intention is our S-O-L-E intention, right? What we truly want is coming from a deeper place. And when we touch that place and allow it to come through, so it's not just a, a mental thought, but it is it's a it reverberates through your whole being because you're already starting from, uh, I, I feel closer to who I am, I know who I am, and... I want that to be expressed. And for someone, it might reflect in their job, or maybe it reflects in a relationship, or it might reflect in the fact that they want to spend more time in nature and now they want to move out of the city. So you don't need to set your intention to get there. Or not that you don't need, that's the wrong language. It's not that this element of intention that I'm describing is about setting a goal, but it's about when you're connected to the essence of who you are, now you're always going to be moving in the direction of your goals uh, from a place that feels authentic and and real. A a couple of times in our conversation, you've talked about this notion of goodness, inner goodness, knowing, feeling, sensing our goodness and the goodness of uh, everything. And I'm curious if you could describe what that feels like to you, if there's a feeling quality, and if you were to to rest and sit in that goodness and speak from it, what it feels like. Mm. I love the question. <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> uh, it feels uh, expansive, warm. It feels... Um, vivid. It's almost like a uh, uh, a leaning, uh, a leaning into reality, where where the the colors of yourself and of life are are vibrant. Uh, so that's the kind of the feeling space of it, uh, and the almost the association with others, with that which is outside of your being, uh, is joyful. Uh, it's 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 a feeling of of unity of connection. Uh, it's a sensing. It's a sensing of uh, of of rightness. Capital R rightness, not like right and wrong morally, but like yes, like a, like a like a. It feels yes. It feels right. It feels aligned. It feels it feels good. <laughs> that is. Uh, I like it. Thank you. Okay, one more uh, big topic I wanted to talk to you about is the anatomy of a transition, if you will, because you write so beautifully in your own life about how you've made such huge identity transitions. You know, you went from successful musician with a record label deal to studying the Torah in Jerusalem. And I want to speak directly to that person who's in a transition, who is let go, either they have let go of something or they know they need to let go of something right about now. 
and they don't know what the new thing is yet. And there's a lot of uncertainty and fear, and we could say darkness. What's the new thing? Is it going to work? What have you learned from your experience that could be helpful to that person? Yeah. For many years, when I looked back at my experience, trying to identify how I was able to walk away from that, what what was going on inside of me, um, and I try to analyze and remember what makes that leap. Uh, and then I think about it in kind of smaller contexts in my life today. Uh, the recurring theme is one of trusting your intuition, trusting yourself, and uh, having faith that you don't need to know the destination, um, but there needs to be unknowing. So you don't need to know where you're going if you know that this is this is wrong. Sometimes you know the place I'm in isn't the right place. So, But if you don't have a direction at all, if it's completely blank, so then I guess in the meantime, you're waiting for clarity, right? You, it, It's hard to make a move if you don't have some inkling as to where you should want to go. But if you do, if there's something inside of you that's calling you and it's saying, this, that is where I'm supposed to be, there's something there. So my, my feeling has always been, you know, lead with your gut and check with your mind, right? meaning your your soul your your heart is calling you somewhere we have a mind because sometimes it's coming from the wrong place it, it could be it could be that it's an ego driven place so we want to check and make sure and and use our mind in our all our decision making but it's not about leading with what makes sense up here all the time we we have to honor the the soul as it speaks through us you know, you know in our heart in our gut in our uh in our calling and uh, have faith that we are moving in in a direction that is that is good for us. If you check with your mind and it comes out that maybe it's dangerous or it's such a high risk that the cons might weigh out pro, might outweigh the pros there. Um, so then there's a time to sit and uh, reflect deeply about okay, well, do what do how much do I really want to take that risk? Um, but barring barring such a maybe potentially catastrophic risk, uh, your heart is there. It's it's leading. Uh, the universe is good. God is good. You know, we move in that direction. Uh, and maybe the last point on that, and then we'll, we'll close that question is, if you think you have to know wh where you're going, if that has to be clear, sometimes that ends up being a block because sometimes you don't get there right away. Maybe you need to be in 18 months of what you call the darkness, that the, that dark night of the soul is real. Um, but what's born on the other side of listening to your heart and listening to your soul is the soul that you've now co-created, right? It's the self that you've now co-created. So that's the direction we're going in. You write in the three conditions that when these three conditions are met, you become like a spiritual antenna is the metaphor that you used in terms of what you receive and also what you transmit. Can you tell me more about that, being a spiritual antenna? Yeah, that, I mean, I, I like that a lot. And I think we touched on it a little bit before when we spoke about living a supercharged life, when you are in that alignment, when you are in that space, um, you have different insights that you don't normally have. 
the type of days you have and how they unfold. They look they look differently. Your behaviors are different. Your uh, relationships look different. You you are saying the right things at the right time. You are pausing at the right time. You find space for silence at the right time. Uh, there's less ego. Um, you, that's what I mean by an antenna. You're you're allowing yourself to be uh, in the world and tuning into things that either might be coming in your direction or that maybe people in the room don't sense yet, and you can you can pick up on that. Uh, you become a channel to a certain degree. Um, some people literally are, are channeling thoughts and ideas in those moments, and sometimes it's just a sensitivity, sensitivity to self. You know when it's time to get up and leave a room. Uh, you don't know why, but but you know it's time, and you know it's time to enter a room. Uh, you can sense when a person needs to hear something more loving. You become more empathetic in that sense. Uh, you can also sense when you're around someone who uh, might be emotionally dangerous and you need to step away, right? So uh, there, there's a certain openness that comes when you're in that space. You're also drawing uh, new experiences into your life that are, again, when you're in a, a heightened uh, space. So what you what you're putting out you are receiving there's a mirror effect in this reality and uh, that will be reflected back to you and so you can tune into that which again it's like a radio station right you you go to a certain station you hear a certain song so when you're on a station of love and joy and peace and uh goodness uh you're in that alignment uh you see more of those things more of those things show up for you and as you're aware there's a there's a, a number of anecdotes in the book where you know i I've, of course I, I try to live as an embodiment of these ideas to the degree that i can uh but i can't create the events <laughs> i can only try to co-create the inner experience but then when the miraculous events show up or the synchronistic events show up uh you know, you you can begin to laugh at the uh, frequency by which they start showing up. The deeper you lean into that space, uh, it's an equation. <laughs> now, Moshe, you're currently in Los Angeles as part of the launch tour, book tour for the three conditions. But I presume when this tour is over, you'll return to your family in Jerusalem, and I'm that's correct. Yeah, and I'm wondering, how do you imagine? being a spiritual antenna human transmitting light and healing when you return what do you imagine what do you imagine will be helpful how can you embody that helpfulness i'm just curious what your your thoughts are about that well it's hard to say exactly because um, i'm a very present moment individual we don't know what the world will look like in three and a half weeks or whenever it is that I'm going back. And uh, I pray it looks better than it does today. Uh, there's no guarantee that it will. Uh, there's no guarantee that we'll have more or less listening ears to this type of message. Uh, whenever a challenge like this shows up on the surface, uh, one of two things happen. Either it is an impetus to fall deeper asleep into some spiritual unconsciousness, uh, or it's an opportunity for great awakening. And I think we see both happening in the world right now, for sure. There's uh, there's a lot of awakening that's taking place. People want a better world, and uh, the darker things get, uh, the more we desire things to be better. Uh, so it's hard to say exactly what that might look like in three or four weeks. Uh, but I do imagine that it is a, a furthering of what the last chapter of the three conditions, uh, which is about uh, remembering the light 
of consciousness, the light of our life, uh, the light of God, the light of love that unifies all forces in this reality. That for me is the most essential message of anything that I've ever taught, which I, I want everyone to live a happy life and a good life and a, uh, you know, an, an essential life that that's, uh, what I am called towards. But beyond all of that, it's a, it's a godly life. It's a, a life filled with love and light and connection, uh, which means getting beyond, uh, our egos, uh, indi individually, uh, nationally, globally, you know, there's so much uh, invested. It's thousands of years of history invested in uh, in a battle and a fight, uh, which is a challenge. So you can't you can't walk up to someone who's filled with hate and hate them into love. <laughs> you can't. That doesn't work, right? Um, but what you can do is you can you can stand as as that beacon of light, as that beacon of love, of kindness and empathy, of being able to hold space uh, for those who are suffering, uh, for those who are anxious, uh, for those who are grieving. Um, you can you can be that light for them, and we are we are all in that sense we are light workers to the world, uh, and we raise the frequency of this reality when we independently go to that place without condemnation. There's no remedy in condemnation. That's not what we're here to do. If you see evil, if, if I see evil, you you point to it. And so that it's there's an awareness towards uh, behavior and action that is reflecting that which is cut off from the source. That's not a, uh, a desirable long-term vision to reality. Uh, and to the degree that I can use my platform to to bring more light into this world, uh, that's what I feel blessed and called to do. And I uh, really, you know, I don't do this often, but I do urge and I call on anyone who has the capacity to uh, amplify messages of light, of love, of peace, of connection, uh, of unity, of remembering that we are one family, we are we are uh, one race, and uh, if we can do that, we we will create a better world together. One uh, follow up question. You know, I, I've heard people say that there's a connection between the increased challenge and crisis and our potential for awakening to this unified love and light. How do you see that connection between, uh, if you will, crisis and spiritual awakening? Sure. Uh, I think it's true. I think history has proven time and time again uh, that on a long enough timeline, when we see crisis, it awakens people to change. Uh, it's almost like on a small scale, if a person finds out that they have um, uh, a health scare in their body, it awakens change uh, towards better health. Uh, I think on a on a global scale, we do the same thing as human beings. We, whether we believe it or not, we do love ourselves, <laughs> even even if we don't believe that we do. We we want to be here. We want ourselves, our children, grandchildren, we want the perpetuation of, of humanity uh, and of goodness in this world. And so sometimes the darkness is so strong that it reminds us that we can't let it live there unchecked. And so now we're forced to create new ways, new pathways, either to eliminate the, um, the cause 
of whatever it is that's darkness or in in the in the body's case the the source of a disease the source of um, a lack of health and if you can uh, cut it off at the root so then it does not continue to fester and grow uh, sometimes it needs to be removed so that the rest of the body can continue to flourish uh, but we make those decisions and we make those changes for the good of the body it is it is my belief that human beings all are made in the in the image of god that there's a spark of light that's there and the challenges force us to find it um, if there's a collective dysfunction in our psychology which there is <laughs> to a large degree um, so it forces us to make better decisions going forward and i think we'll see a lot of beautiful things coming after this spiritually speaking in in kabbalah for sure and torah for sure there is an idea that there is a the words are a yerida letzora We go down in order to go up. And the metaphor is that you have to bend your knees to jump. Sometimes we go down to get higher. And uh, I think we're in uh, that type of inflection point right now. Moshe Gersht, I have so loved talking with you. What a mm. warm, kind, and illuminating conversation partner you are. Just beautiful to be with you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Feelings are so mutual. Moshe Gerst, the author of a new book, The Three Conditions, How Intention, Joy, and Certainty Will Supercharge Your Life. Great to know you. Thank you. My pleasure. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after-show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.